on the latest episode of The Other Side. Mystic Dylan returns to unearth the history of the mummy's curse. Plus, get an update on this month's magical forecast. It's a zombie Bigfoot's cryptic crypt tie-in you won't want to miss. Go to patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club for more info. Hey Club Scouts, Michael here with the Quick Corrections Corner for today's episode. I'm actually recording this on the day this episode dropped. Um, I just wanted to point out that I mistakenly say that Amityville is in New Jersey. It obviously isn't. It's in New York on Long Island. You would think that after researching the story all week, I would have caught that. I didn't. I don't know what happened. I think I conflated the real location with the filming location from the 70s movie when I was typing up the script, uh, which was in New Jersey. Anyway, uh, I'm an idiot. It's a minor but important correction, and it was totally my fault, so I'm sorry about that. I guess this is what I get for mocking demons in the middle of Mercury in retrograde. Anyway, happy Halloween, everyone. I'm a dum-dum. Enjoy the show. Bigfoot Collectors Club presents Terrifying Tales from Zombie Bigfoot's Cryptid Crypt! <laughs> I know a ghost story about you! Ha ha ha! Welcome back to another episode of Bigfoot Collectors Club, the show where we talk to amazing guests about their personal paranormal history. And my mind was just going, do I join in or do I just let him hang himself? I was like, hey, what do you mean? See how long this will go. I was like, whole episode just Michael solo. Crushing it. You were. Uh guys, welcome back. I'm your host, Michael McMillan. With me always is your other host. Bryce Johnson. And our super producer. Riley Bray. And guess what? I lied to you. There's no special guest tonight. Because even though it's zombie Bigfoot's cryptid crypt month here on Bigfoot Collectors Club, the main feed, and over on our Patreon, the other side. Boys and girls. We have a juicy, juicy deep dive or saga episode. I don't know what to call this. Should we call it a deep dive or a saga? I think so- it's a deep dive. Saga to me means like one, two, possibly three episodes. Roswell was definitely a, a saga. saga. But but since we established it, this is just a one parter, but it is a it's an epic episode. It's a deep dive. It is. It is absolutely a deep dive and one that I was a little nervous about, but I'm glad I, uh, I, got, I went through the portal. Listen, listener and Riley, I'm going to be straight up honest with you. I got so much resistance from Bryce on this episode. <laughs> First of all, this guy, even when there was I'm a lot of resistance giving him there. the most help and trying to make him the most comfortable, <laughs> he still likes to bitch about homework. And I couldn't tell if it was just because you didn't want to do a deep dive right now because our, your schedule's been a little busy. Yeah, you're, you're helping children learn at home, and that is something that I do not have to do. It's a lot, um, but you know, I'll tell you. I mean, there both of that is true, but I mean, there was a little hesitancy on my part just because because you were scared. Of the, yes, yes. I mean, I to knew be, it. It, it, I was a little, I was a little scared to be. I knew it. <laughs> you know how I feel about that oh, shit. I just God. like, oof. I'm cool with Bigfoots in the forest. I'm oof. cool with aliens in their ships in the sky. 
But when it comes down to the down and dirty of uh, oh man, I'm demonic so possession. I'm happy like, you just we we waited to have this conversation to this moment because <laughs> I didn't even tell Riley. I was thinking there it was in the back of my mind. I was like. He is acting really well. I'm like, every time I'm like, hey, I ordered the book. It's coming your way. I even brought the book over you to did. your house. You totally brought it to and my house. And I was house. like, yeah. he is not excited about this. And I was and like, you, I can think- leave, you can leave that on the porch, Michael. That's fine. I'll just grab that later. <laughs> he just stood at his window and shook his head. He wouldn't even come out to see me. So I was like, that's not true. But I was like, I wonder if it's because he's scared. And now I'm just, I'm thrilled about that. But, uh, but. <laughs> All right, before we get into it, I I have to say to both of you guys and our listeners, happy third birthday to Bigfoot Collectors Club. We've been doing this for three years, October 31st, 2017, just a couple days away from when this episode drops. Um, Guys, congratulations, three years. That is crazy. Dude, happy birthday. That's amazing. Even baby says happy birthday. Man, it's yeah. It simultaneously feels like we sort of like just started this and I've been doing it my entire life. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, a weird feeling. A paradox, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. It, it is cuz I this weekend even I was like I always said, I always said I'll do it for at least 3 years. I wanted to make that commitment. And usually every time this year, I check in with you guys to be like, "Okay, um any objections do we go for another year guys thoughts and you guys are like yeah that's cool let's do it yeah let's do it yeah Yeah. you know it's like god looking back on three years it's uh it's really the listeners who and uh who keep me going because god even reading some of the comments like you shared with me just the other day about how people really enjoy it and it gives them you know something to look forward to if they're into this subject matter and and uh, I mean, it's subject matter that I think we we all really love and adore. And and God, it's like it's such an adventure going down these uh, these rabbit holes. And and I do love it. It's so much work, but it's so worth it just to hear these, uh, you know, the listeners get their enjoyment from it. So that that's what keeps me going. And our friendship, of course. I mean, I just adore you guys. So uh, it never really seems like work anyway. Well oh, put, thanks, man. I yeah. second all of that fully. And thank you, listeners, for. sticking with us for this long i mean some of you guys i know have been listening since like the first couple uh weeks you know which is incredible um if you have uh listened since the first episode and you're still with us shoot us an email we would we would love to know totally what's wrong with you and we'd also (laughs) like to thank you uh as we'd like to thank all of our journey with us yeah (laughs) totally yeah it's crazy i think i honestly think bryce we recorded that episode zero three years ago like today it was like you're probably right i know we did it right in the room where i'm at right now and uh yeah man what a trip that was uh my and then son. i had like four days to go how do i post post a podcast i don't know <laughs> where's the podcast button i don't where's understand the podcast <laughs> yeah where's the pot where uh yeah, yeah we've come we... a long way and then i mean god looking at our at our newest shirt zombie bigfoot's cryptid crypt it just like it all feels so right to me it's like uh god i just got my stickers from t public the other day and i'm I'm going into my kids' room, putting it on their cork board. I'm like, here you go. And my daughter's like, I don't want that on there. I'm like, it's going on there. Okay. It's your daddy's podcast, and you will support whether you like it or not. Okay. One day you're going to look back and you're going to be like, that's a cool ass sticker. 
<laughs> you should consider joining the Patreon. It's yeah. only five dollars a month. You should consider joining the Patreon. <laughs> Give her a five dollar a month allowance just so she can support the Patreon. Exactly. Uh, but that's a great reminder. I was going to do it at the end of the show, but fuck it. Uh, head over to wearecampfire.media. Click that shop button, and guys celebrate zombie bigfoot's crypt to crypt before it's gone the shirt's gonna stick around so don't worry about it that we've decided this shirt's a perennial so it'll it'll be around after this month and it's just tyler bench did such a great job on it that uh we got we got to keep it around it's a permanent uh fixture in the uh campfire store so guys it's a great episode to celebrate our 30th anniversary because as as we said we have another deep dive episode and i think because this is a meaty fucking episode this might be this is for sure the longest story of high strangeness we've ever done in one single episode totally Uh, i think we should just get right into it what they want to hear about is mass murder that's really what they're (laughs) that's Um, what they're here for so riley uh we started the Roswell the episode this way. We're going to start this deep dive as any future deep dive episode. Bryce and I have done the research. We wrote this uh, tonight's terrifying tale together. Uh, and and you have no idea. You were not part of it. You're going to score the fuck Correct. out of it. But I am. Now, we a couple of years ago, uh, I think in our first year of the other side, we watched the Amityville horror movie as one of our er- first movie clubs. I think it was like the second or third movie club we did. Mm-hmm. So I know that we've we've sort of experienced this and discussed this story, but we didn't even do like a deep dive or even a full high strangeness on that at all. We just kind of talked about the movie. So what do you know about the Amityville horror? Uh, father murders family and wife then kills himself. Possible possession. Is that the nuts and bolts of it? I mean, you've got you're already wrong. You're already wrong. <laughs> See, I know nothing. <laughs> I mean, you're getting it's yeah, Bryce is right. You're close, but it's no, it's not quite right. I I, I definitely picture a, a white farmhouse somewhere rural-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh that's kind of all I, I've got. Maybe people say it was built on a burial ground, maybe. That that there's that factors into it yes you're you're getting right. okay. you're getting okay you yeah, there, you're getting warmer you've we've we've poured you the sample of wine and you're getting all the right notes you know yes, you hints, just hints and aromas yeah you yes. just haven't tasted you just haven't tasted <laughs> that uh that that beefy cab yet you know but you're about to well, let um, us fill my, fill my glass then let us fill your glass pour that. here we're pouring the glass for you right now as we do that bryce uh just general reactions to to uh diving into this one were was it as scary as you thought it would be you know <clears throat> yeah it's fucked up it's totally yeah it's uh yes it was freaky i you know i i've never really <laughs> i'm like i've never really read like a, a real true account of like uh you know murders and demonic possession and and poltergeist and uh, that shit just freaks the and fuck you still out of me. haven't <laughs> and, uh, i read it cover to cover and, and i no. watched the documentary too i think the keyword is true here this is this is the controversial subject <laughs> oh yeah i i yeah i guess and we'll get into that right but yeah, i yeah, i yeah, took yeah. i took most of what uh the book that we both read uh jay anson's the amity amityville horror as uh 
as a mostly factual account, of course, piecing together some threads to help create a, a story arc and, and maybe a little bit of a fictionalization. But but for the most part, the events that took place, I believe to be uh, quite accurate. Interesting. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to reserve my opinion. I, I, I'll, I'll say this. I'm a little on the fence about this one, but okay. but uh, but I think I'm gonna figure out my way to a resolution by the end of this episode. Oh yeah, after, oh after for sure. It. And and I and I do want to just say up front that we know this story comes with a lot of baggage, and there's no way we're even gonna get in, into all of it. But we we're gonna address it. I know there's a lot of people that are that call this whole thing horseshit. But again, we thought it would be fun to go back to the original source material to see what inspired the legend, see what that had to say. And then like any of our stories of high strangeness, sort of take the story at face value, talk about this story and then talk about some of the history around that as well. So that's that's kind of what I think our goal is tonight. We're just trying to tell a creepy, terrifying tale for zombie Bigfoot's Cryptic Crypt. Mm -hmm. My that's goal what, is to get you there. Here. It's it, it happened. It exists. Uh, it happens more than people like to admit, and I think it certainly happened to okay. the Lutz family in the in the late. All 70s. right. Well, we'll find out. So, uh, Riley, take a sip of that cab. Open up your organ. Uh, Riley, uh, Bryce, give me a hand with uh, Zombie Bigfoot's Cryptic Crypt for one yeah. last Hold time. On this. Let me just get the skeleton of October. Oh, let's open this up. Oh, I already let go. Sorry. Oh, there we go. Oh, right. stinks. Dude, that's some gnarly Death, Bigfoot. decay, and a slight yeah. bit of Pineapple Express. Mm-hmm. Well, let's begin with a meeting of priests. Lifted from the book, The Amityville Horror, by Jay Anson. You seem to think there is something demonic going on in the Lutz's house. That the place is possessed somehow. Well, let me reassure you, first of all, that places and things are never possessed. Only people. The traditional viewpoint of the church sees the devil in a number of ways. He tries through temptation, by which he is seen to prod men towards sin in the psychological battles with which I'm sure you are familiar. Then there are the so-called extraordinary activities of the devil in the world. Usually, these are material things around a person that are affected. That might be what you're up against. We call it infestation. Obsession is the next step in which the person is affected either internally or externally. And finally, there is possession. Yes, by which the person temporarily loses control of his faculties and the devil acts through him. I'm from New Jersey. This is how New Jersey priests sound. And I'm from somewhere over the pond. But this is taking place in New Jersey. <laughs> Can't you tell? The devil holds no boundaries, Father This is Lucien. true. This is true. He travels as he may and All as right, he All right, shut up. Shut yes, up. of course. <laughs> Let's get this going. Over the course of December 18th through January 15th, 
1975. The Lutz family, well, actually, I've already started with a mistake. Through the course of December 18th, 1975, through the course of, God damn it, leave all of this in, <laughs> through January 15th, 1976. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Who can you trust? The devil's already driving this bus. Perhaps the devil has assuaged you with your date recollection. The devil fucked with my dates. I said fuck, fuck, I'm going to hell. Over the course of December 18th, 1974, fuck. He's got you by the little short and curlies now. Mm, He's got me by my balls now, and I think I like it. We got a long way to go, guys. Yeah, you better get fucking rolling here, bro. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> I could just type it and it's all on my computer in front of me, but fuck it. Over the course of December 18th, 1975 through January 15th, 1976, the Lutz family of Amityville, New Jersey, claimed to experience a haunting so terrifying that they vacated their home just 28 days after moving in. The story of the Lutzes soon gained national attention, buoyed by the tragic history of the house itself and the sight of a grisly family murder that occurred on November 13, 1974, just over a year prior to the Lutz family haunting. The story inspired a novel based on Lutz's true accounts and launched a decades-long horror film franchise that has lasted well, decades. Great proofreading, Michael. The Amityville Horror remains one of the most recognizable titles in American haunted history. And I did read this twice. This is why I can't be my own copy editor. But what was the original story that began the legacy? And were the Lutz family claims true? Did a demonic force attempt to possess 28-year-old stepfather George Lutz? Or were the Lutz family the victims of a term of traumatic echoes of the past reaching out to grab their attention in present day? Mm. Or was it simply a hoax created by a young couple exploiting a local tragedy and a desperate need to make some quick cash in the middle of some tax problems? Unlikely. In tonight's deep dive into the haunting of the Lutz family, we go back to the source of the legend, the 1977 book, The Amityville Horror, by author Jay Anson, who wrote the book based on over 45 hours of recorded eyewitness testimony. We'll also look at some of the criticism of the book and the Lutz family, as well as share some information from subsequent paranormal investigations and take a look at the legacy of the Amityville haunting. So sit back, dear listener, draw the curtains, if you will, and turn up the heat, because things are about to get bone-chilly. This is the terrifying tale of the Amityville Horror. Part 1. The Amityville Murders Whether or not you're inclined to believe the claims of the Lutz family, we know for a fact that something truly horrific occurred at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New Jersey, on November 13, 1973. At around 3.15 a.m., Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr., a 23-year-old man suffering from severe emotional issues and an angry grudge against his father, loaded up a 35 caliber Marlin rifle and systematically murdered his entire family as they slept. 
Despite growing up in an affluent family and literally given everything he needed to succeed in life, including one of the family's car dealerships, Ronald had a troubled, increasingly hostile personality made worse by a history of drug and alcohol abuse. After becoming suspected of taking part in a robbery, Ronald threatened to kill his father after Ronald Sr. encouraged his son to cooperate with the police's investigation. Ronald would later claim that his father had a history of abusing the family, which might have added fuel to his murderous desire. True. In the early morning of November 13th, Ronald walked into the bedroom where his mom and dad slept and shot and killed them both. He then walked into his two younger brothers' bedrooms and shot the both of them in their sleep, before finally entering his two sisters' bedrooms and shooting them fatally as well. The six murders of Ronald DeFeo Sr., Louise DeFeo, Don DeFeo, Allison DeFeo, John Matthew DeFeo, and Mark DeFeo all took place within a 15-minute time span. Ronald then showered and went to work at the dealership, where he feigned surprise when his father didn't turn up as well. At 6 p.m. that night, Ronald went to Harry's bar and told witnesses that he had come home to find his entire family murdered. Suffolk County Police reported that all six family members were found face down in their beds. At first, Ronald blamed a mob hitman by the name of Louis Fellini, but his narrative quickly unraveled under police scrutiny. He eventually confessed, telling the detectives, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. Ronald Butch DeFeo was convicted of six accounts of second-degree murder on November 21st, 1975. During the trial, his defense lawyers pleaded temporary, temporary insanity, claiming the murders were prompted by voices Ronald had been hearing. For months before the incident, I heard voices. Whenever I looked around, there was no one there. So it must have been God talking to me. But the prosecution made a convincing case that even though Ronald was an LSD and heroin user, he displayed symptoms of antisocial personality disorder. Ronald DeFeo Jr. was sentenced to six sentences of 25 years to life. Just 14 days later, the Lutzes moved into the home where the murders took place. Crazy. What? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So this is true. This is 100% true. This murder took place. It was uh, a big story in the local news. Um, and as we'll find out, not all of the details leaked, but um, it, it, it's a wild, brutal, true crime story. And it happened in this really affluent neighborhood. You know, this is an uh, upper middle class neighborhood. The DeFeos were, um, you know, they, they, they owned a string of successful car dealerships. And Ronald DeFeo Jr., <clears throat> he was kind of that guy you knew in high school that was like, had everything he needed. Uh, but was kind of a fuck up and kind of a jerk. He clearly suffered from some uh, mental health issues and was maybe narcissistic, maybe a bully. They 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 uh, prescribed him with antisocial disorder in the trial. But he was but, the kind of guy that like every time he fucked up, instead of his mom and dad sending him to military school or coming down really hard on him, they would like give him more money and give him more responsibility as a way to kind of like achieve responsibility i guess and it never worked 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's important to remember the fact that, you know, he had always claimed, though, that he was hearing voices. Somebody outside of himself was speaking to him and, and, and telling him to do these things. Now, now, Mike, you said it was just 14 days after the, the murders of that or was no, it? No, no, no. After his year? conviction. His after conviction. his conviction. OK, thank you for clearing so, that up. Right. Yeah. And uh, Riley, you sound like you want to jump in. Oh no! I just I thought it was 14 days after it happened. I was like, "Gee, this is that's insane. no." Just like, after no his con- house just that. after his conviction. So, okay. here's the thing about the hearing voices, and we're going to talk about this a little bit at the at the end. Um, his uh, his uh, defense lawyer was pretty creative, and that might have been something that um, his defense lawyer said. Well, this is the way we're going to get get you off. Is by pleading insanity Mm. there's also a theory a true crime popular true crime theory uh that it wasn't just ronald who acted alone because here's the big question around these murders six people in the house all asleep using a gun that doesn't have a silencer everyone is found face down in the bed and basically shot in the back of the head execution style right so at no point does any of the family get up and check on what's happening upstairs. Somehow, within 15 minutes, he manages to kill six people, sort of simultaneously, it feels, uh, without any of them waking up and, and, and creating a struggle. Well, it begs the question, you know, did he drug his family members? And why, I guess, you know, even though Sergeant Gianfredi of the Suffolk County <clears throat> Police Department um, said that he did, basically saying... Well, the story is that Ronald DeFeo drugged his family at dinner on November 13th, 1974, and then shot them all with a high-powered rifle while they were out cold. Um, at his trial, he did claim the voice told him to do it, Sergeant Gianfrido said, but, but... And that's from the book. That's from, from Jay Anson's book. book, but... A toxicology in... reports, according to news reports, said there were no drugs in their system. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and that still doesn't describe why hearing six gunshots, no neighbors... Uh, you know, heard something and reported yeah. it to the police because that's at 3 a.m. And you're going to hear the sound of a rifle in a neighborhood like that. The houses are literally right next to each other. So, you know, I contend that, you know, something was already taking place paranormally. Well, this, you know? is, this is why it's such a fun, and by fun, I mean, you know, not fun because people actually got murdered, but this is why true crime detectives and, and readers like this case. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a big theory uh, that's out there um, that, uh, that Ronald actually had help from his sister and a mm. friend and 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 uh, Ronald later said this in a confession that might be bullshit as well. So we have to take it all with a grain of salt. But he said he and a friend and his sister were getting high in the basement. She was also mad at the dad and um, because he was abusive and they planned to kill the parents, but spare their brother and sister. And then he after they killed the parents, his friend freaked out and Ronald went to chase after him to get him back to the house to help clean up the murders. And Don decided to go kill the rest of the family. And then when Ronald came back, he saw that his sister had murdered everybody and then they struggled and he killed his sister. That also sounds like uh, a fantasy that maybe he's cooked up to maybe make himself sound like less of a fucking monster. Right. But I'll be honest with you guys. 
Since we focused more on the horror story to come, the haunting itself, I didn't totally go down the wormhole of all the true crime stuff. It's just sort of the backdrop for this story. But I'm going to put links to uh, there's a, a website called the Amityville Murders that goes into all the alternative narratives of maybe what happened with the DeFeo family. Sure. Look, it's rare. But it's but it happens. It's called family aside. It's when somebody kills their entire <laughs> family and uh, familial side. I think right. Familial side. Fam- family. I like aside. family aside. Family aside. Family, family, family aside. aside sounds like the name of a, a sitcom. sitcom. Like family, family on the side. side. <laughs> it's, it's about a man who has multiple families. <laughs> family on the side. You know. I I I, I believe it was Ronnie who was under. You know, listen, already a guy like that who doesn't have, you know, his life completely together and might be susceptible to, you know, to some sort of evil energy that might have pervaded that space, you know, could have caused him to... I'm not letting him completely off the hook, right? But when you put everything of this story into the context of what took place of the family afterward and what, uh, you know what psychics and parapsychologists said about the house later, it's hard to deny that, you know, there was a good chance that, you know, Ronnie DeFeo might have been under the influence of some sort of demonic entity. Brother, you couldn't have cued us up for the next part better. And we'll come back to this right after this break. Part 2, The Amityville Hauntings. Exclusive Amityville area. Six-bedroom Dutch colonial. Spacious living room, formal dining room, enclosed porch, three and a half baths, finished basement, two-car garage, heated swimming pool, and large boathouse. (laughs) A real must-see, huh? 28-year-old George Lutz and his wife Kathy, age 30, couldn't believe their luck when they found the house on 112 Ocean Avenue. The three-story home was a huge place with plenty of room for the recently wed couple and their three kids, Danny, age 9, Chris, age 7, and the youngest, Missy, age 5. All Kathy's children from a previous marriage. There was even a boathouse for George's two boats, a 25-foot cabin cruiser and recently purchased speedboat. Oh, and don't forget the Harley. It's, you know, it's nice that a man who has recently stepped up to raise three children from a broken home has his priorities straight. Yeah, you know, you got your kids, Kathy, I got my toys. <laughs> Don't fuck around. These boats are my babies. He treated everyone worse than those boats, including the family dog, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> the only hiccup with the house was it had been the site of a grisly family murder spree. But hey, what's a little sordid history when you can get the whole joint for a mere 80 grand? It was the American dream on a budget, a house that the Lutzes wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise on the salary George was earning through his struggling construction business. So they did what any sensible young couple would do. They said fuck it and bought the place. Besides, George didn't believe in superstition. The house opened to a central hallway with a staircase that climbed three stories. On the ground floor to the left was a large living room and enclosed porch. To the right, a dining room and the kitchen towards the back. The second floor consisted of the master bedroom and a spacious dressing room. 
Missy's room was across the hall from the master bedroom, and the second floor also included a sewing room for Kathy. The sewing room is the bad room. They never ended up putting anything in there. And you know that every house has a creepy room, and that that was theirs. And, and, And we'll find out that, like, that's where they really think the entity was hanging out the most, was in that empty... The empty, unfulfilled promise of a sewing room. Right. Well, and there was another creepy room, which we'll get to later on. That's true. There were two creepy rooms, but two that was creepy rooms. What was the creepy? Do you guys? Did you guys have a creepy room in your house growing up? Mine was my. Mine was the bathroom that I was forced to use. It. it I always had nightmares of going in there and the lights never turning on, and I would have to like, uh, just knew something was coming out of the mirror. Oh, yeah. I remember my mom had a basement, which it was exactly like the basement from the movie Troll, and that shit fucked me up. I mean, I was, like, not happy to go down there. Anyway, the third floor... You know, Riley didn't... That's fine if Riley... Oh, yeah, my We don't care about Riley's (laughs) Right, sorry. I'm I'm still here, guys. (laughs) Riley, did you have a scary room? I mean, my parents moved a lot growing up. I lived in a bunch of different houses, but... So every uh, room was strange to you? (laughs) They're always strange. It's it's, it's always the laundry room for me, though. I feel like that's the creepy... Like, that kind of utility room, the one that sits the most, you know, like the the sewing room. That's the devil's favorite room. Mm -hmm. The third floor of the Lutz's home is where Chris and Danny would share a bedroom. Now, across from the boys' room was a giant playroom. The rest of the third floor consisted of storage space. The house also had a basement, which held a few secrets George would uncover in the weeks to come. Week 1, December 18th through December 24th, 1975. The Lutzes moved into the Amityville house on December 18th, 1975 with their dog Harry, a Malamute lab mix who spends most of this story in a compound next to the garage and is, to me, the saddest part of this entire saga, including the mass murder. <laughs> I feel so bad for this dog. And this, I've, I hate, I, it just makes me mad when people just don't let the dog in the house. <sighs> anyway. That's old school. That's how you do a dog old school. Uncle Dickie, you're not you 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 stick to the manscape dad. <laughs> no crossovers. You have no you're not you you're not infesting this story, Uncle Dickie. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Dickie's the demon that haunts Just our Amityville. Sit there and, haunts us all. Just sit there and be quiet. I do have a feeling he'll be back. You can stay in here if you just be quiet. <laughs> all right. Sorry about that. It's all right. Anyway. Kathy and George were practicing Catholics, although it sounds like Kathy was more into religion than George, who was the groovy kind of guy who'd recently turned his new wife onto transcendental meditation. Not that you can't be religious and also be into TM, but this was the mid-70s when such practices were looked upon with much more skepticism than they are today. And in fact, at least according to Anson's novelization, Uh, The family priest would later go on to suggest that it was George's TM practice that may have left him susceptible to demonic influence. That's so ridiculous. I know. It's really... uh, By the way, just heads up, most of this story and everything that comes after is just like... Is is like a it's a commercial for the Catholic Church. I just right totally. It's just you know good or bad. That's what this is. Father Mancuso's like. You don't read those Buddhism books, do you? Exactly. <laughs> what are these beads? What is this, a friendship bracelet? <laughs> friendship with the devil. <laughs> yeah, and in a related side note, 
In the epilogue of the book, it suggests, and in the documentary film My Amityville Horror, which retells the story from the grown-up perspective of Danny, the, 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 the oldest brother, who it outright accuses that George had a previously established interest in the world of the occult in general, even bringing books about demonology and witchcraft into the family when he married Kathy. Nevertheless, the aforementioned family priest, Father Frank Mancuso, or so his name is in the book, it's a pseudonym, came over to bless the house on the late afternoon of December 18th, despite a prevailing bad feeling about visiting the location of the DeFeo murders. Yeah, and maybe I'll maybe I'll jump in here because I ha- I that might be I take umbrage with that, right? Because it's like according to the book, you know, George was always like, I don't believe in superstitious. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I don't believe in anything like that. Yep. And you know, it, it it says later in the book that when things start to hit the fan, that's when he got you know uh, books about demons and witchcraft because yes. he was trying to figure out what the fuck was going yes. on. I'm and just in that saying, documentary, right? I'm, I'm, I'm just we'll, saying, we'll, we'll get to the documentary. We'll I'm just saying that the, the kid grows up to say, no, man, he was always into that shit. Right. So, and so I guess we'll never really know the truth, but it makes more sense to me that it happened, you know, midway when, when George is really Well, that makes it. a better horror movie, doesn't right, it, at the end right. of the day? You know? But I am fascinated with the idea, and we'll get into more of this later, that perhaps, like you said, Michael, that George did have an interest in the occult. I have opinions on all of this. Okay. So anyway, according to author Jay Anson, as the, the, we're coming back to the book, as soon as the priest entered the house and flicked the first sprinkle of holy water, he heard a clear, masculine voice say behind him, Get out. I was really hoping that's when Uncle Dickie would come back. <laughs> yeah. Get out. <laughs> what a man. But when the priest turned around, there was no one there. Shooken, Father Mancuso then drove over to the, his mother's house for dinner. When she saw him, she asked if he was feeling okay. Admitting that he felt a bit uneasy, his mother told him to go take a look at himself in the mirror. His eyes had dark circles around them. Then, on the drive home from his mom's house that night, his car started behaving erratically and his hood flipped up as he drove down the Van Wyck Expressway and smashed his windshield. By the way, that happened to me once when I was driving my 1970 Chevy pickup truck. On the highway, the hood flipped up, and yeah, I was like, but I I played it smart. I just slowed down. I checked all my side mirrors, and I slowly made my way over to the the side of the road, but that shit was scary as hell. was that just a, pro- a crisis? Is that just a problem of cars in the seventies that their hoods just randomly flipped up? Dude, I was like, <laughs> oh, that should not happen. No. Yeah. I I've do- never known yeah. anyone that's happened to. That's wild. Very strange. For the next twenty-eight days, Father Mancuso would form a strange, sympathetic link with George Lutz and the paranormal happenings at the Amityville house. Mm. Yeah, there, so there was definitely some sort of link like you said with with george and the father yeah and it Uh, seems to be the sort of psychic tug of war that's going to take place as if an unseen force is affecting the two of them mm -hmm. um and and just to skip some tedium throughout the story throughout the book 
uh, you know, George tries to reach out to Father Mancusto and he's, you know, uh, they can never quite reach each other and they're static on the phone. We'll get right. into all this stuff a bit, but uh, it is, it is, it is weird. And I, I don't know about this Mancuso character. <laughs> I know. Well, I know. <laughs> really a great priest that's all i'm gonna say (laughs) more on him later but speaking of george yeah during the first week in the house he would find himself having trouble settling in and getting comfortable it started on that first evening when harry the dog almost strangled himself on his chain after inexplicably throwing himself over the fence and i feel like i should inject here and let everybody know that the dog makes it out alive um, he also does eventually get to sleep in the house, but not under the circumstances that I that I desire. But the dog, the dog's okay. The dog makes it out. Thank God. Speaking of which, George immediately had trouble sleeping in the new home, waking up every night at the curious time of three fifteen a.m. and feeling compelled to check on the boathouse or stare at it from his bedroom window. He was always freezing in the house, complaining of a cold that chilled him to the bone. Even when the thermostat read it was a cozy 78 degrees, no matter how many fires he built or how hot he set the thermostat, sometimes cranking it up to 90, he was always cold. In the first week alone, he went through 100 gallons of oil for the downstairs burner and an entire cord of wood. It was like whatever entity was in the house wanted George plopped right in front of the fire, gazing at its flames. Meanwhile, Father Mancuso was getting hot. That is to say, he struck a 103-degree temperature and became ill with the flu after visiting the house. And by the end of the week, giant red welts began forming on his palms. He couldn't shake the feeling that the Amityville house had made him diseased. Maybe a hot shower would have helped warm George up, but he stopped shaving and stopped bathing, unusual for a man who was typically hyperhygienic and very neat and tidy. That's a great spot for Manscaped, Dad. They wouldn't become aware of it at first, but both George and Kathy began to undergo a gradual personality change, along with the kids, getting more aggressive and short-tempered with their children. Lots of whippings in this first week or two. The kids Mm -hmm. are constantly pissing off Kathy and George for just normal kid shit. He'd scream at them. Kathy would get horrified by his behavior and his treatment of the kids. And then suddenly she'd be whacking them with a wooden spoon for cracking a window pane in the playroom. By the way, once again, I too was whacked with a wooden spoon. I think we're learning a lot about me here. Uh, We are. Many layered onions. You had more of a 70s upbringing is what we're hearing. Back at the Amityville house, the traditional paranormal activity began, like most cases do, with a knock. George awoke on the second night to a knock on the front door, but when he went downstairs, of course, no one was there. Knocks then started to ring out from around the inside of the house as if an invisible being was toying with him. Kathy was experiencing strange things as well. It started with the sense that someone was watching her. Then came the sudden, strong whiffs of perfume, and the night Kathy felt the soft touch of a woman's hand caressing her own. One night, Kathy came upstairs after being alerted by the children that all of the upstairs toilet bowls had turned black. A sick, disgusting smell filled the house, and Kathy and George were shocked to discover that her sewing room was filled with flies. In the dead of winter! Then, on the evening of December 22nd, 
George woke to find their heavy wooden front. I almost said heavy wooden spoon. Their heavy. (laughs) (laughs) George woke to find their heavy wooden front door was open and dangling from a single hinge. The door had looked like something had wrenched it open from the inside. It was as if instead of something trying to break in, something was trying to break out. This is right around the time when Kathy began to notice the strange behavior of the kids, particularly with Missy. On the night the door had been ripped from its frame, she checked on them in their beds and found that they were all sleeping on their stomachs just like the DeFeo kids had been when their bodies had been found. Kathy claimed it was the first time she ever saw them sleeping this way. Yeah. Now it's important to note that the Lutzes claimed to only have a passing knowledge of the DeFeo murders when they moved in. It had been a big story in the press, but many of the gruesome details, like the positions of the bodies, weren't reported in the initial stories. George hadn't yet prompted research... George hadn't yet been prompted to do research on the DeFeo murders, and if you're wondering if the children knew about the murders, which you should be, according to the documentary My Amityville Horror, um, Danny said that after his parents bought the house, Kathy informed the kids of the murders and looked at her children in the car and said, is that going to be okay with you guys? (laughs) Like, what? What fucking choice do we have, Mom? (laughs) Again, 70s parenting. Well, we have to tell the kids that there were children murdered in this house. Why would you tell them that? Yeah, a little after the fact, Mom. A five-year-old girl does not need to know that there were kids murdered in the house. A seven- and a nine-year-old boy don't need to know that. Well, we believe in transparency. You don't tell the children that. You don't tell the kids that. It's another Buddhist philosophy, transcendental meditation and and transparency. We're practicing both. And here's another what-the-fuck moment, right? So a couple of days after the family moves in, this weird stranger comes over with a sixer of beer and says... Everybody wants to come over to welcome you to the neighborhood. You don't mind, do you? Although, no one else did come over. He then wanders into the kitchen and repeats the same speech to Kathy while he just stands there. After a few awkward moments, he held up his six of beer and said, I brought it. I'll take it with me. Okay, like... That's a weird moment in the book. And I thought it was going to lead somewhere and it doesn't. And I can't tell if it's just like, who creeped who out in that moment? Did the neighbor creep them out or did they, did he creep them out? I don't know. I think that's just drunk neighbor. (laughs) It could just be drunk neighbor. He's like, I'm the guy who jacks off in your boathouse. Is that still going to be cool now that you, because this place was empty for about a year and I got some good times back there. Is it okay? Well, and it did mention that the book did mention that the kids brought over a friend from the neighborhood who who like didn't want to go to the upstairs playroom it's like i'll, I'll just play down here in the living room yeah he, no, he, he wanted to play in the foyer he in just foyer. wanted to play like in the just in the first 10 yeah. feet of the house and the kid never fucking came back so that, i mean like yeah. people were picking up on the vibes and the uh playroom too was said to be always freezing in there and the kids never wanted to play there either you know they would occasionally but it's just none of the rooms worked out the way that they want them to because ever there'd been people that have been brutally murdered in there bad energy yeah <sighs> anyway not really believing in the supernatural it wasn't until george discovered the secret red room in the basement that he decided he should research the house's history but I'm getting ahead of myself because, Bryce, we need to talk about Missy. Oh, yes, we do. By the end of the first week, by the way, just one week, they've not even been here eight days yet. 
By the end of the first week, Missy turned to her mother and curiously asked her, Mommy, can angels talk? <laughs> week 2, December 25th through December 31st, 1975. George woke up at 3.15 a.m. on Christmas morning to Kathy having a night terror while screaming. She was shot in the head! She was shot in the head! Another gruesome detail about the murders that had been left out of the initial news reports. After calming his wife down, George felt compelled to go outside and check the boathouse, a feature of the house that was becoming a nightly fixation. While standing in the backyard, he glanced up to his daughter's window where he saw Missy staring down at him, and behind her, he could plainly see a pair of beady, glowing red eyes and the face of a pig. George rushed up to her room but found Missy fast asleep in her bed. Okay, can we stop here real quick? In the book, and this is on page 69, um, he goes up to her room. She's asleep. She So it sort of implies she hadn't been standing at the window. He sees this horrific pig face that... This is, this is important. Yeah. And then he says th- that uh, he saw a chair was rocking on its own. And yeah. then it just moves on. And I'm left wondering, did oh, okay, did it, what did he do with the rocking chair? And this is like one of those moments where I'm like, Jay Anson, are you just adding some horror movie tropes in this well, book? Well, or was there remember, really? <laughs> if you remember from my Amityville Horror, the documentary, Danny recalls that rocking chair saying it fucking rocked for 20 minutes. And his father like picked it up and had been like, was like, there must be some explanation. And he was like looking at the bottom of the chair, uh, investigating the floor it was on. And, yeah, that's and they true. were stymied. And he also claims to have also have been there when he saw the pig in uh, the window, and he said it looked like a cartoon pig. Yeah. Like a Looney Tunes cartoon Angry pig. Angry Looney Tunes cartoon with pig. With red eyes and the wo- the teeth of a, of a wolf. Laser red eyes. That's what he says, laser <laughs> red eyes. You know, and I, we'll, need, we'll talk about it later at the end of this, but I want to know, like, how much of, like, pop culture got its stuff from, like, the Amityville horror, like, rocking or, chairs and or, girls discussing, well, you know, little I, girl I, saying, Mommy, can angels talk? Uh, just like, or, oh. or, or I'd like to propose... How much did the Amityville Horror get its stuff from pop culture? Maybe. A zing. A zinga. Well, we'll have to discuss it. Anyway, the next day when Kathy told the kids she wanted them to stay out of the sewing room, which had been the room infested by the flies, little Missy said, I know why we can't go in there. Jody's in there. Jody? Who's Jody? He's my friend. He's a George wasn't around to hear this. Otherwise, he might have been more afraid than Kathy, who, when later overhearing Missy talking to herself, asked, Who are you talking to, Missy? An angel? Referring to Missy's strange question from earlier. And maybe not that strange for a little kid after all. Christmas decorations were up and there was an angel on the tree, but Missy responded, No, Mama, just Jody. Jody's a pig. He's my friend. Nobody can see him but me. Shortly, I know, after I'm really that, on the nose with this little kid character, but I'm sure she's much more simple than that. She's just probably way more casual than that. But I am, uh, 
I'm, I, you know, I'm going stereotypical hey, once again. Uh, you have artistic license. Shortly after that, Kathy claimed that she was embraced from behind by a female presence that she felt the week before. Again, bringing it with the smell of perfume. As she tried pulling away, the grip tightened and Kathy screamed. No! Leave me alone! The presence vanished and she started to cry. <laughs> Missy found her mother weeping in the kitchen and simply told her, Don't cry, Mama. Jody says everything will be over soon. Oh, hell no. <laughs> During this period... George becomes sick with a terrible, painful diarrhea, otherwise known in occult literature as demon shits. Father Mancuso also continued to feel threatened from afar from the house. And even though his palms were clearing up, whenever George tried to contact him by phone, the call was always interrupted by wild static or cut off as if the house did not want the men to communicate. Yeah, because George wanted him to come back and help, but Mancuso was like, no, I'm not going back there. Now but, I see, uh, like, Mancuso doing the phone. Hello, George. Oh, yeah, uh, he's just uh, doing it with his mouth over, over the receiver. Uh, George. I'm sorry, my 1970s windshield car is going through a tunnel. Uh, 1970s windshield. Come on, you can do better than that. Anyway, uh, around this time, George and Kathy also discovered a secret room at the back of the closet in the basement underneath the stairs. Yeah. The room was painted solid red and the couple were perplexed by what it could have been used for. With a gnawing, creeping feeling, the couple closed the secret room, but not before George claimed to have caught the glimpse of the visage of a bearded man against the red paint. Yeah. George decided to finally do some research on the house using the microfiche from the offices of the local newspaper and spending some quality time down at the local historical society. That's an educational way of avoiding time in your own haunted house, basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. During his search, he learned the house had been built in 1928 and it was passed down to a few families before it was bought by the DeFeos. More research turned up rumors that Amityville had been built on the land of the Shinnecock Indians, considered to be cursed. Now, this was later completely shut down by the heads of the local tribes, everybody, so let's not get carried away. There were also rumors that the land that the Amityville house was built on was once used by an early settler named John Ketchum, was forced out of Salem and used this new plot of land for his satanic rituals, at least according to George Lutz and Jay Hansen. There seems to be no historical evidence for this and is very likely to be one of the book's embellishments of the legend. However, George was shocked when he found a photo of Ronald DeFeo Jr. and recognized it as the face he saw secret red room mm. yeah that that red room was there for some reason i guess which will which, they thought maybe we'll it was like there know. for bootlegging there was yeah. also he turned up rumors that ronald's father had like a two hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy and maybe that's also why he murdered him and then maybe hid the money down there right. or that there was like the family had some hidden money someplace away uh, we don't know you know and i've read too that like that that the that the that i've read that like 
the room was always there and wasn't as secret as the book makes it out to be. But, you know, if if you bought the house on a whim and moved in and didn't discover that room until like the first 14 days, then sure, whatever. You know, and you might be surprised because they said there was a the, the closet down there had a panel that like a secret panel that would be um, revealed. I, I mean, I can imagine it was built there for like bootlegging or you know, for in, something in, back in the day. Interesting note was a bartender at the local bar, the Witch's Brew, he said he was there at the DeFeo's house for a party one night serving as the as the bartender. And he used that little storage place to store some of the kegs and, and beers. And and he was sort of transfixed by that pan when he the, the keg shoved the paneling open and he, he discovered for himself this red room and was transfixed by it. And he goes on later uh, to say that he started having nightmares about this room where in his nightmares he envisioned pigs and dogs being slaughtered in this room. Yes. That Yikes. is in, yeah, that's in the book. And that's the same bartender that points out that George actually was look, looked a lot like Ronald DeFeo and his not bathing and growing out his hair and growing out his beard. Although it can't be that shaggy after 14 days, 15, you know, yeah. uh, less than a month. Yeah. But if you look at pictures of George Lutz and then look at pictures of Ronald DeFeo, they look alike, man. They look almost exactly alike. And that is not made up. That yeah. is just fact. Um, so that's kind of a creepy God. connection there. And, and know, it is interesting to point out, too, that Ronald is not dead. Ronald is in jail. So it's not like his ghost right. is down there. It's more that there's a psychic impression of him being in the house that he's picking up on. Yeah. I think I think it was literally it wasn't like he was seeing a figure. It was literally like almost like the Shroud of Turin, like the face appeared on the wall. Is well, what what the book implies, and this idea of of even a guy like John Ketchum. Well, I'm having deja vu. That's very strange. I I, I just dive in, a, get into it. I had a deja vu of reading this exact line, that's saying almost these exact same things. It, it's so strange that John Ketchum, um, you know, the idea that you know he would he had these satanic rituals there because famed. Uh, Famed demonologist and medium Ed and Lorraine Warren, they investigated the house later on, and one of the psychics they were with did bring up an idea that he thought dark ceremonial magic had been practiced at that space. And so, you know, you can't discount entirely what took place before DeFeo's got there, before the Lutzes, I mean... You know, and it's possible too knows? that like Ronald DeFeo. I mean, it's his fucking seventies. They're pot smoking teenagers doing LSD and heroin. Yeah. Apparently, like maybe they were doing weird shit down in the basement. Yeah. Who knows? You know? The Ouija board was brand new. Who knows what <laughs> Parker Brothers trouble they were getting into down there? Wow. Anyway, let's move on. It's the day after Christmas, and what does everyone want? And and what does everyone want to do right after Christmas? Go to a wedding. That's right, because Kathy's brother Jimmy and his fiance Casey had planned on getting married the day after Christmas, and George was to be his best man. Jimmy came over dressed in his tux with $1,500 in cash stuffed in his coat pocket to pay the remainder of the holding fee to the wedding location. But once he took off his coat and set it down in the kitchen, the money mysteriously disappeared. Apparently, demons need cash, too. Yes, those uh, Bugattis fueled by human suffering, they, they aren't cheap. <laughs> That's right. Jimmy was <laughs> frantic, and they all tore the place apart, but to no avail. Nobody found that money. 
So George, I'm, being the guy he was, he wrote. A I'm check. gonna say right now, I'm gonna call this George stole it. Just George <laughs> stole that fucking money from his brother-in-law, straight up. I mean, you know, George did say he cut, uh, wrote a check to help cover the costs, and you know, the wedding went off without too much of a hit, mind you. Of course, George was still battling his demon shits. That's true. He was preoccupied with massive, horrendous diarrhea. You need to get that man some ammonium, a demon. <laughs> Uh, uh, guys, I turned uh, 42 this week. I'm officially into dad jokes. All right. Hello. Kathy wasn't immune to her own torments. Towards the end of the second week, Kathy began noticing a ceramic lion that seemed to teleport around the house, no matter how many times she returned it to its shelf upstairs. The lion seemed to even appear under George's foot, tripping him in the living room. When Kathy examined her husband, she was shocked to discover bite marks around his ankle. And if adding demonic ankle biters wasn't enough, on New Year's Eve, Kathy met a new horror in the house when a white-hooded demon, complete with horns, materialized in the family fireplace. Week 3, January 1st through January 7th, 1976. Things escalated at the dawn of the new year. In the early morning of January 1st, all the windows in the children's rooms blew open, almost freezing the kids to death. As the winter grew dark and bitter and winter storms rolled in, the Lutzes began their final battle with the house. Over the course of the week, Jody made his presence known by peering into the living room window and startling Kathy and George as they tried warming themselves by the fire during a snowstorm. As Kathy screamed, George grabbed his flashlight and ran outside. There was no pig, but he could see hoof prints in the snow outside the window. Harry, the dog, was acting strange all week. Lethargic, not eating... The vet could find nothing wrong with him. And in addition to that, the smell of human excrement began to infest the house. Kathy felt continuously stalked by that strange female presence. Deciding to do some more digging, literally, George went down to the basement to see what he could find out. And that's when he discovered that when the contractor had laid the foundation for the house at 112 Ocean Ave, it seemed he had covered a circular opening with a concrete lid. George loosened some of the gravel around the base and heard it fall into the water far below. It was a well that didn't show up in the blueprints. Now, it didn't show up in the blueprints. That's right. <laughs> now, George had heard from his friend at work, Eric, that his girlfriend was attuned to these sorts of things and that she would be happy to come over and feel the place out. So he called her up, and to his surprise, she right off the bat said, You should look for an old abandoned well. Yes, a covered up well, I think, she said, that your spirits may be coming from there. You can cap it off. Even with a tiny crack, that's all it takes. It can climb out whenever it wants. Now, something I wanted to bring up, which I thought was really interesting, I didn't know about. Eric's girlfriend, uh, her name was Francine. She said she was born with a Venetian veil. Have you yeah, ever heard I've, of that, Michael? I have. I have. This is cool. This is when there's like a thin, 
like layer of film skin. of skin yeah. from the forehead that covers the face and then the doctors have to take it off but it's a sign yeah that the child has like a preternatural or um uh, clairvoyant uh senses sense senses senses yeah wow it's pretty it's weird, rare yeah and, what uh, a weird i mean it's, it's like perfectly acceptable but but strange yeah and they call it the venetian veil because it's like you're 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 born in two worlds. You're still of the other world, and you're like in this oh, one, yeah. but you're right between the veil. And wow. uh, it's and cool. it's interesting uh, just how quick she hit on. Oh fuck, it's coming from the well. And I mean, yeah. we always talk about how paranormal activity needs water, uh, which is a superconductor of yep. electricity, yep. to operate. And it sounds like they were sitting right on top of it. Right. Meanwhile. Father Mancuso keeps feeling guilty for not doing anything to really help this family. But he counsels with the local leaders of the Catholic Church, and they all basically agree that the Amityville house is harboring a demonic force that is trying to possess George Lutz. They then proceed to do nothing about it. (laughs) They strictly forbid Father Mancuso from helping, and he wrings his hands for the rest of this book. Seriously, this character is worthless, and probably none of these chapters actually <laughs> happened in real life. But there is cool stuff in the section about demonic possession, which is the only reason why we put it at the top of this story. I know. Totally. It really makes me want to do sort of more research into how the Vatican handles, you know, real well, verified I mean, cases the, of demonology. You well, know, and this is he's he's working with the local diocese. But totally. I, I, honestly, I think like. But there's a chain of command there, you know. But but yes. But but here's the thing. I really think this whole Father Mancuso thing is based on a real guy. It's not his real name. I think he did bless the house. But um, all the further research indicates that. He really didn't have a relationship with the family, and Mm -hmm. that's why he didn't come back over to the house. I think a lot of these chapters in the book, I'm just going to call it right now, are fleshing out the the sort of demon versus goodness thing Mm -hmm. and uh, are just kind of filling out the story and giving it a little bit of a narrative through line and, and really remind me of a very popular film that was out around this time a few years before called The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think this character is really embellished and I think it's Jay Anson. Uh, right. So The Exorcist predates Amityville. Yeah, 73. Yeah, 72 right. or 73. Good to know. And, and The Shining as well, which is also about a father kind of going crazy and thinking about murdering his family. Right. So just putting all that out there, yeah. uh, that's all I want to say. Yeah, um, good point. But there's that fun part in the book, uh, Bryce, I think you put it in the notes about father mancuso's priest friend yeah who who he received gets a, a call near, yeah yeah where he hears this ominous voice say tell the priest not to come back or he'll die and so you know i was like okay that's interesting because if that did happen i mean it's not out of the realm of possibility but, but it just makes me wonder how many ways that this entity can manifest itself you know sure can it pick up a phone and call and 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 you know, well, hold a I will, conversation. I will say, and I guess I guess we're editing as we're going, yeah. but that all echoes all the stuff that we've learned from John Keel that yeah. the phenomenon can that uses like landlines to fuck with people. Yeah, so, right. That's who a knows great if point. this is even a demon. It might just be some interdimensional entity trying to fool these people into thinking it's a demon. Who the fuck knows? Who knows? Anyway, at the end of the week, George was shocked to discover Kathy floating out of bed and toward the window. After a brief game of -of tug-of-war, she collapsed to the floor and awoke. 
And as she cried and asked her husband what had happened, he simply told her that she'd had a bad dream and fallen out of bed. But things got really crazy after the Christmas decorations came down after the epiphany on the 7th, which, by the way, the author forgot to close the storyline on on George's great-grandmother's ornament. I mean, I don't know. He set it up, but he never... Well, we didn't set that up. Well, I don't even remember that. Yeah, right. Remember, it was... So it was... uh, No, Jay Anson set it up in the story as George's great-grandmother had this beautiful laced-in-gold ornament, which... uh, I thought for sure that thing was going to be you know, oh, yeah. thrown into the th- fire or whatever. Well, but. I think the idea here is, and and uh, this stuff about the epiphany, you know, that's of course like what in is the, the epiphany on the set? So the twelve days of Christmas are basically, I think it's like Christmas Eve or Christmas Day through the seventh. It's I like see. an old world tradition. So the idea is like the epiphany. I think is when the actual three wise men showed up. Oh wow! Okay. So you celebrate and you keep the tree up for that entire time, and then you take the decorations. <laughs> down after the seventh which got is it. the epiphany okay i'm paraphrasing some of this if i got that wrong i'm no, sorry i was raised presbyterian uh so we took down in my house we took down the tree on new year's day because someone a great grandma said it was bad luck if we uh kept it up in in the new year so i don't know but um every family has their own traditions but the but i think what the implication here is um and and this comes from more from the amityville my amityville horror is that those Christmas decorations with all the crosses and all those angels and all the Christmas or Christian iconography uh, were helping keeping the spirit at bay during the holidays. I see. Even even though one of the first things that happened early in the story is that you know Kathy found one of her her crucifixes turned upside down in her right. bedroom closet. Uh, but that's the idea is that like once they take down the Christmas decorations, this fuck Jody's coming to fuck down. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> Jody's gonna. Jody's really That's what gonna. I was waiting for. Thank Jody's you. really gonna fuck shit up. That leads us to the final week, January eighth through January fifteenth. The attacks escalated against Kathy. George awoke another night to discover she had aged into an old lady in the middle of the night. Her face soon returned to form but not before leaving deep gouge marks in her cheeks and long after George's boner died. Hey! At another point, Kathy found marks streaked across her torso that burned to the touch. George had called Kathy's mother over to calm and soothe his frightened wife. This all seemed to be in retaliation against George for studying up on the nature of demons and the nature of devil with his trusty Bible. Mm. Father Mancuso refused to come by the house. George didn't understand why, but the priest ultimately advised him to take Kathy and the kids and vacate the premise. If the attacks against Kathy weren't enough to convince George, maybe the green slime would be. Cue Ghostbusters music. Yeah, green slime. Can you believe it? And one of the most... In one of the most outrageous accounts to allegedly take place in the Amityville house, Kathy supposedly found the kids in one of the upstairs hallways gawking at green gooey at a green gooey substance bleeding from the walls. At first, at first believing the children had been playing a prank on her by throwing green jello everywhere. Better get the wooden spoon. <laughs> it it wasn't until George examined the substance and tasted it, <laughs> stuck his pinky yeah. in the slime, and went. He literally went. Ooh, uh, not Jello. He went. Mm, 
Mm. <laughs> That's not Jello. Confirming it was in fact not Jello, but some kind of ectoplasmic manifestation or paranormal puke, as George would later refer to it. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, do you have p- parrots all of a sudden, Bryce? Do you have pet parrots? Are, when did you children. adopt those are parrots? My two lovely children rebelling against their bedtime, uh, <laughs> as you can hear in the background. And Don quietly signing divorce papers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> never. Uh, yeah, green slime, dude. I mean, God, that had it's to a be where, on the nose. It, right, I but mean, it had to be where Ghostbusters <laughs> got that from, right? I mean, well, I think yeah. maybe, but also uh, Dan Aykroyd knew. I mean, now we're getting off. Well, that's tangent, what I'm saying. Yeah, Dan had- Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd. I mean, the idea of ectoplasm had been around at the turn of the century. That was like a big thing with like old turn of the century seances and spiritualists. Oh, and that went Fox back sisters. even further than this. Oh yeah, ectoplasm. Oh, where where the, the Fox sisters? We'll do an episode on them at some point. But like, oh. would claim to puke up this ectoplasm. Oh, material no way. and it was, was it, it turned, green too or do you know or uh not always it might have been i think um I don't, i'm not sure if it's green yeah. but a lot of times it just turned out to be like uh, uh muslin that they had like weird stuck in their mouths or puked up for the people and we're like look it's a spirit's ectoplasmic form it was a parlor trick well apparently there was tons of the stuff because george and his boys were dumping the green slime putting it in buckets and dumping the green slime into the freezing water of the amityville river uh by his boat for it to be swept away um nice yes yeah please not infest the long island river with satan there's also a lot of the book where George – so George is, is obsessed with the boathouse, and he thinks at one point that maybe there's money hidden out there. But he's really obsessed with, like, the boats not freezing uh, in the winter right. weather. So there's, 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 like, too many chapters about him just, like, making the water bubble so that the, uh, the boats won't freeze in the water. But, but it does show – I think that is an indication to show that, like, he really was – even three weeks into this kind of regretting buying the house and was worried about money and worrying about, you know, like he even says in the book, like, why did I buy a speedboat before this? <laughs> Which that is a question everyone should ask themselves. Yep. Right. Why yep. did I buy a speedboat? Yeah. Why did I buy? I mean, this is a man who is sitting here recording a podcast with a six inch kit Fisto figure from attack of the clones in his hands. But, but, <laughs> not as as expensive as a speedboat oh my god on january 11th the lutzes awoke to discover they had somehow slept through a winter storm that had blown open every window in the house and flooded the ground floor as they spent the day cleaning a half destroyed home George noticed harry began to howl and wail and act erratically in his compound George moved Harry down into the basement where the dog seemed terrified by the presence of that secret red room. Despite her mother's pleading to get out of the house, Kathy and George decided that they were going to try and stick things out. And one of the other things that came up in this section is that George, while George is trying to sleep, he literally describes hearing what sounds like marching bands playing right. loud instruments marching around the ground floor and marching up and down the stairs to the second floor and nobody else can hear it that is i think the creepiest detail in the entire book yeah that's like horns and drums and footsteps as this band is like marching through the house 
Yeah, that's creepy. Uh, has anyone checked for a carbon monoxide leak? That is house? a very good question, <laughs> Riley. Riley, again, where my mind goes. This is a man who was raised in the '90s. We didn't give a fuck about carbon monoxide back then. We were still dealing with lead being uh, in, in, yeah, in gasoline, true. which created a, a generation of serial killers, including the one that murdered his family at the beginning of this entire fucking story. Uh, solved. There we go. Case closed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well you know uh that doesn't Things? explain it's just they slept through that storm that and i don't know yeah that's no like it's true it's true there's a, and let me tell you maybe but m- m- most of the paranormal uh occurrences in the story rely on people just sleeping through things so <laughs> I, it's you it's a lot of quaaludes Riley, going around then too you know, I know the 70s. that might not explain this when george noticed noticed kathy was acting well wait a minute oh, you're oh, getting ahead oh, of me little man little man. i wanted to say that things took a turn for the worse in the final three days that's when jody and the white hooded demon decided to up the ante thanks big man <laughs> That's when George noticed that Kathy was acting a little strange, almost as if she had been, well, completely sexually satisfied. Come on, you know the look. Slippers on, shoulders back, Marlboro Light 100 dangling. It was as if the spirit visiting her at night was doing way more than just levitating her. And she had confessed to having strange dreams about a woman she came to believe was Lorraine DeFeo having an affair with another man. Which I guess turned out to be true. I guess it turned out that Lorraine DeFeo did have an affair uh, in that house with another man. Uh, And also, just sidebar, uh, they talk about in the book that George and Kathy, who were a pretty hot and heavy couple, like, immediately stopped having sex as soon as they moved into this house. Right, right. um, Mm. But she seemed to, like, they had, they did, like, do it maybe once just because there needs to be like one sex scene in a book but like um there's that but yeah he was like who's fucking my wife like he kind of was like what's going on here (laughs) he said it just like that and although if kathy was feeling any pleasure it was certainly brief because during a cleanup after the storm kathy and george rushed to the boys room in alarm when they heard danny screaming They ran upstairs to find his hand had been slammed in the window. It took all of George's strength to get it open. Danny's fingers were said to be completely flattened. But strangely, no bones were broken. After a trip to the ER, the boy was told to just ice it. Again, 70s, 70s medicine. Yep. <laughs> what happens here, and, 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 and we get this from the book, and we get this also from the documentary, My Amityville, My Amityville Horror, was something fixed his hand. So something not only caused his hand to be hurt and possibly broken, but something also fixed it. So in the documentary... Well, oh, well, wait a minute. Hold on. When okay. you say fixed, you mean I mean healed? Yes, healed. Because... I thought I thought you meant like held his hand under the window because no. I I think this was during the period where they were like the windows kept blowing open and the storms kept coming in. Yeah, this is just like over the course and they're like well, the hammering way, windows shut. The way and, he describes it was his hand was completely flattened, almost yes, as if but, his bones were crushed. But was... I but but I did want to say I did want to just before we uh, say that it sounds like. That the, the entity slammed the window on his hand in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I think right. that's what we can uh, 
yeah. what we can take from that. But now in the in the in the documentary, my Amityville Horror, Danny recalls personally that uh, when that happened, he came downstairs into the kitchen. His mother was trying to ice it, and they were all looking at his fucking hand, which was the size of a fucking baseball glove. And he said the side door opens, and they all turn their head to see a fucking spirit walk through the kitchen through his hand, knock over a peanut butter and jelly knife that was on the table and sit down at the kitchen table. It was then that he looked at his hand and it was fixed. That, and he says that he never that's went That's not to how he doctor. told the story. That's not how he tells the story. <laughs> what are you talking about? I just watched this thing. No, I know. I did too. He says it was flat, flat, right. and then the spirit walks through. Right. Then his hand blows up to the size of a baseball glove. And then it goes, and he said in a second, it snapped back to being okay. uh, All right. reforms. Right. Well, I mean, whatever this is like, happened. Listen, this is Looney Tunes physics that yeah, we need to make I know, sure it's that true. we get correct. It's true. This but is a deep dive episode. He's intimating that, you know, let's say that the spirit slammed his ha- the window sh- down on his hand, but it also walked through the kitchen, through his hand, and healed it as well. Or one spirit slammed it, and a oh, different spirit that's good. It. That's good. Maybe. That's good. But he also says in the documentary he was never taken to the ER. That's right. So, again, discrepancies between what Jay Anson's original book says and then what uh, a person who claims was there uh, actually happened. Yeah. Yep. In the early morning of January 12th, 1976, George was woken up by his entire family from a deep sleep next to the fireplace as he screamed... I've become unglued! In his nightmarish vision, George was sitting in the chair next to the fire when he was suddenly lifted into the air by the white-hooded demon Kathy first noticed in the fireplace a few days prior. As George peered into the cloaked entity's face, he saw his own face peering back at him. Surrounded by his terrified wife and children, Missy told him, Daddy, come to my room. Jody says he wants to talk to you. Jody? Who the fuck is Jody? He's the biggest pig you ever saw. (laughs) It's getting getting worse. Uh, A pig? Could it be the same one he and Kathy had seen peering through the windows? As he pointed towards one of the windows, and there, Kathy and George could see the red, piggish eyes peering into the house menacingly. At this point, pandemonium breaks out as Kathy swings a chair at the window, and the screams of a pig are heard. The Lutzes freak out, and no one leaves the house. This is becoming a pattern, and the pandemonium only escalates from here on out. Meanwhile, George, once again, tries to convince the most useless priest ever to come help his family. Refuses to accept the invite over the phone. So George did turn to help for a psychical researcher named George Kikoris, who promised to come out in a few days' time and hopefully provide the Lutzes with some answers as to what exactly was happening to them. Because things were getting real fucked up. Now, breaking everything down beat by beat is a bit tedious here. But over the next two nights, 
Jody, the pig, makes a final attempt to make sure the Lutzes will never, ever leave the Amityville house. That's right. On the night following Jody's third appearance at the window, the entire family slept in the master bedroom. When George had a terrifying dream about his son Chris being enveloped by this dark shadowed entity, the white hooded demon. Now, as he woke Bit of an oxymoron. Up, Bit of an oxymoron, but yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, but isn't it all? Now, as he woke up and found Chris safely in the room, the boy admitted that he had gone upstairs to use the bathroom and that he could see through the floor to his family sleeping below. That's right. And there's more marching band sounds happening for George. Uh, and, you know, Father Mancuso's talking to his fellow priests while he's not helping and they're all like this entity seems to be deriving pleasure from all this family's pain so it's probably demonic Um, and around the same time Kathy wakes to George speaking in two different tongues languages she'd never heard before so you know know, that's, that's another one so that's, that's a, going that's on. That's an old chestnut. That's an old chestnut. Hoping for more answers about the activity happening on the upper floors of the house, Kathy tried consulting Missy, who had seemed to sleep easily through all of these events. That's when she recalled the question Missy had asked her earlier about if angels could talk. Missy. Missy, look at Mama. Is Jody the angel? Yes, Mama. He tells me about the little boy who used to live in my room. He died, Mama. He got sick and he died. (gasps) What else did he tell you? Last night he said I was going to live here forever so I could play with the little boy. That's just creepy as fuck. Yeah, that's not really... Right? Like, that's what really fucking scares me, right? Is like, you know, we don't know what the afterlife entails. And hopefully the afterlife entails moving on, right? But I think the idea of being stuck in limbo or or being forced to play with some little boy in a creepy house is just fucking nightmare fuel. Yeah, and this is also interesting because... This little boy More doesn't seem later. to be yeah. one of the doesn't seem to be Mark DeFeo. He seems to be a little boy that lived in the house generations ago right. and died of an illness. Right. So you've got uh, an old lady hanging out. You've got a little boy hanging out, and then you've got Jody and this white entity demon hanging out or, all at the same time in this house. Or maybe it is that little boy who couldn't interpret being, you know, shot in the back, and he all he knew was I got sick and died. That's you true. Know? That's a good point. We don't so really know. Strange. It's true. That's true. It's just it's it's creepy. <laughs> it's very creepy. It's all creepy stuff. George and Kathy make an attempt to leave the house with the kids on January 13th, but as they loaded up the van, dark clouds formed overhead, and a severe thunderstorm drew in. A lightning bolt actually struck behind the garage. The van refused to start, and as the winter storm started hammering away at the house, the Lutzes were forced back into their home and into the grip of Jody. As the Lutzes tried desperately to sleep through the storm, George could hear the ghostly marching band tromping through the house as Harry barked and whined erratically through the night. The doors were opening and closing and slamming all through the house. Then, George felt the sensation of a heavy, 
invisible being crawling into his bed and walking across his body. It was the unmistakable sensation of the hooves of a pig trampling him. The kids came running into the bedroom screaming. George turned to Kathy. I should say the boys came running into the bedroom screaming because George turned over to see Kathy and Missy still sleeping soundly throughout the insanity. Again, check that carbon monoxide. We need some, we need some uh, alarms here, uh, detectors here. The boys told their father frantically, It's a monster. He doesn't have any face. He tried to grab us, but we ran away. That was the final straw. With all of his God-given strength of will, George pulled himself from his bed, gathered his family, and ran out of the house. The front door was already dangling from its hinges once again as they made their escape. And as he ran down the staircase with his family, desperately fleeing Amityville once and for all, George could see the image of the white-hooded demon pointing at him. They fled to Kathy's mother's house, believing to be safe at last. But like all good horror stories, the demonic presence wasn't done with them yet. In the closing chapter of Jay Anson's depiction of a true story, George and Kathy are horrified to wake up in the guest room of their safe haven to witness a greenish, snake-like line of slime crawling up the stairs for them. Great closing shot right there, that green climb. Whatever it was that haunted 112 Ocean Avenue had followed them. A hitchhiker. The following February, a team of psychical researchers that included Ed and Lorraine Warren, parapsychologist Peter Jordan, along with the news crew from Channel 5 News, including... Laura Didio and Marvin Scott and journalist Joel Martin spent, and I think the George Kakiros came into that. That might be a pseudonym for Peter Jordan. Not sure. Uh, sorry about that. I know it's a deep dive. Fuck that part up. But uh, they all spent six hours conducting a paranormal investigation in the house. It was a fairly quiet night, except for the fact that one of the Channel 5 news reporters, uh, a cameraman actually, felt strange heart palpitations. He had no previous uh, issues with his ticker. And Lorraine Warren said she'd never felt such a strong demonic presence. And after the uneventful evening, she provided a photo that seems to capture the image of a mysterious young boy hanging out in one of the upper levels of the house. Now, Riley, you might want to cut this part out because I am uh, sending you the photo of this boy now to your personal email. And I want you to open this up and take a look at this link and look at this picture because it is a bit creepy if it's really a ghost photo. Okay, it's opening. Oh, good lord. Fuck that. No. <laughs> Wait, I've seen this, so, actually. Oh, yeah, we we, did, we looked at this when yeah. we did the Amityville movie club, but this yeah. is supposedly oh. the image of a little boy in the house that 
that Lorraine sent the news crew. Now, everyone on the news crew knew that, knew that there were, and still verify, and they're even interviewed in the Miamiville documentary that there were no children there. Some people think this might have been uh, an actual adult man from Lorraine's crew. Uh, but if you look at this picture and and viewers, we will put it up. Or listeners, we will uh, oh. put it up in our Instagram, and it'll be in a link here in the show notes. It's this. Uh, it's a photo of that's clearly the second floor because the staircase is leading up to the third floor. So this is the floor where um, the master bedroom is, and the sewing room, and a Missy's room. And there seems to be a little boy with peering, piercing, peering glowing eyes peeking out from a doorway yeah. across the banister of the and they had set up motion capture cameras in the house so apparently this image was taken allegedly when nobody was up there oh wow i mean it's it, that's not that's no smudge that is uh the face of a very spooky little boy with those whited out eyes are glowing it's definitely it's pretty disturbing Bryce did we lose Bryce oh shit I think we did oh no oh no let me stop oh shit I hope we didn't lose all of that okay Okay, so we just learned, sorry everybody at home, uh, we just learned that Bryce was muted while we were looking at that photo, so we stopped and, and then we've come back in. Now, Bryce, what do you think about this picture? That picture is so fucked up, dude! Uh, yeah, no, at first I, at first glance, I like, this picture is so fake, but then after hearing the context around of how it was taken, I mean, if that is a true picture, that has to be one of the most clearly defined ghost childs ever recorded on mm-hmm. film. That is Mm -hmm. just creepy. Lorraine Warren said of the case, Whatever is here is, in my estimation, most definitely of a negative nature. It has nothing to do with anyone who had once walked the earth in human form. It is right from the bowels of the earth. So... We have to pause here and briefly address the issue of the Warrens. Um, There is a lot of uh, people who are very much into the paranormal stuff and all this stuff who have a very uh, negative opinion about uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren. I didn't know that. Why? Yeah, well, I I haven't... I thought gone... they were kind of like legends in, in the game. They are, and in fact, our, our listeners might know them as the characters that Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson played in the Conjuring movies. Mm. And the, in fact, the Conjuring, the first film, has a reference to Lorraine visiting the Amityville house and bringing something with her that kind of, you know, has been following her through, through those movies. Bryce, have you seen those movies? No, The Conjuring. Because they're too scary? Won't do it. <laughs> so I guess there's just a lot of evidence that they're kind of, A, frauds, and um, encouraged a lot of people that they talk to to falsify stuff and embellish their stories. Really? Um, yeah, I haven't gotten... We'll do in a whole episode on them at some point. Maybe here or on the other side. We should. Um, the uh, other thing For those thing who that- don't know, I was going to say Ed 
uh, Ed mm-hmm. Warren was a demonologist, and his wife Lorraine was a uh, a medium, um, clairvoyant. Yes, a clairvoyant. Thank you. That's and, it. And they were they were really the first sort of paranormal yeah, investigators. Were, yeah, exactly. They were like they were like a. Um, I don't want to compare them to Greg and Dana Newkirk, but they were kind of like you know they were like an early. Uh, 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 paranormal investigators. They were kind of like the original paranormal investigators. Yeah. And they seem really benign and really cool when you hear their stuff. And like, I've, I loved them for years, but it turns out there's some problematic stuff in the history, including the fact that uh, a woman came forward uh, who's now in her like 60s or 70s who claimed that she and Ed had been having an affair since he was 30 and she was 15 mm. and they lived in the house she lived in the house with them and Lorraine knew about this affair when she was still a teenager there's a lot of weird stuff around these guys uh and a lot yeah, of people a lot of weird stuff around the paranormal we'll have to do a story about them yeah i just wanted to put that out there as a disclaimer that you do not have to put your foot too deep into the internet before you see lots of people saying if it came from ed and lorraine warren then it's got to be false it's oh, got to be fake so I i'm just that. putting that out there oh, okay i don't have a strong opinion but it does seem like there might be some issues with their legacy well, as uh, as actual paranormal investigators. Moving on. The book suggests that the Lutzes had at least, maybe four, three separate entities in the house. One, an old lady, a previous resident before the DeFeos. Two, the ghost of the little boy uh, who may not have realized he was dead. Three, Jody, the demon pig, which may have been the same entity as a possible number four, the white hooded demon. Um. Yeah, yeah, the idea was that Jody was a fallen angel that was uh, appearing as a cartoon or or pig to the kids and to Missy, but then as a white hooded horned demon yeah. uh, to to uh, George and Kathy. Right. For those who don't know, I mean, you know, it's been said that demons, in order to interact with children, will take on the form of something more pleasing, like that of an animal. You know, like a terrifying yeah. demon, like a, a terrifying, terrifying laser eyed <laughs> demon pig. Yeah. yeah. Missy didn't seem to mind, did she? Oh my nothing god! That part is to... the worst part of all of this. Yeah. I hate that part. Nothing yeah. seems it's... to Oof. nothing seems to bother Missy in this story <laughs> at all. If you go back and look, she's cool as a cucumber this entire time. You know, an interesting theory that uh, the, the book states is that some who believe in reincarnation say that we pay for past errors by being reborn in a new body and experiencing the consequences of our actions. But any entity. As resolutely malevolent as the ones who tormented the Lutzes would have realized that a return to the flesh might entail retribution in the shape of physical deformity, illness, suffering, and other bad karmas. Thus, a particularly nasty spirit might avoid rebirth altogether. Instead of seizing the bodies of instead opting for seizing the bodies of the living in order to experience food, sex, alcohol, and other earthly pleasures um i love that you're like eh, i don't want to move on i just want some more food sex and booze well this kind of <laughs> it's the simple things it's the this, simple things yeah. this ties in in the tibetan book of the dead as well mm-hmm. where this idea of um uh i think and i again don't know enough about this so don't come at me but um 
I believe that in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the white light that we all see when we're going out into the next realm is actually sort of the re-entrance light. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people are drawn to it. But if you go into that, you are recycled and you're reincarnated. Mm. And the real goal is to break out of the reincarnation cycle and move towards some of the other lights that are out there uh, in the afterlife. Um, Mm. So that kind of lines up with with some of that stuff. Who wouldn't want to come back to Earth, bro? Earth is dope, dog. Yeah, but but, but Uh, you can get to the higher dimensions. Did you not sense the... uh, (laughs) Yeah, there was... I I mean, I I kind of... Honestly, Bryce, I kind of feel that way because I remember when I was a kid, this is a true story. When I was a kid, there was one of those like the world's going to end on Friday things. And I was so bummed because I just started collecting the cops toy line, which were like oh, big G.I. Joe's that had cap guns with them. And I remember literally asking my mom, like, but is there going to be Kmart in the, in heaven? Can I get more cops in heaven? Can I get more cops in heaven? I just wanted to keep collecting toys. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to be the first one headed towards that white light. You know what? There there is, there's something, there's something luring about the the tactile infirmary of our third density earth. You know, whole point we're down here to experience all of it. Like we're to to food, just what you said, food and fucking and like even pain and misery. And yes, sure, this is all I don't know. Yeah. I, I think like them's the rules down here again. Yeah. And it's like reading a good story. You don't want to go to a movie where you don't experience feelings. This isn't to say that anyone's pain and suffering is meaningless. This is all a giant esoteric giant problem that we're all trying to unpack. I Mm -hmm. guess that, uh, you know, some people, uh, yeah, I don't know. We don't know, but, uh, I, I have to think that there's, there is a meaning to coming down here and hanging out and, and living this life. Otherwise, even if there is suffering, otherwise, what the fuck are we doing? You know, that's all. I don't know. Do you guys feel like you've, you've lived, you've been here before? Do you feel that way? It's a great question. Um, I don't know. I, I think so, but then it's like in, in in astrology. If you're an Aries, right, it's your first time around, right? Oh, isn't that, really? isn't, that, isn't there something to that? I don't and know. I'm an Aries, so I, I really I don't. don't know. Um, Sometimes it's the first of the cycles, but uh, I, I don't know. I feel like possibly, maybe. I I've felt that way before. Yeah, um, I remember when I was a little kid. My mom had a cedar chest up in uh, up in my parents' bedroom. And in there she had a bunch of stuff that belonged to her grandparents, my great-grandparents, and her, and my great-great-grandparents and and I, I have a very vivid memory of cuz that was also like near the TV that I used to watch He-Man and Fat Albert as a kid after <laughs> preschool. <laughs> and I remember, you know, I'd go through that chest and there was a collection of old newspapers in there. And in the old newspapers, there were the old comic book strips with like the original Gasoline Alley and and uh, uh, Dagwood, like all the old, old stuff from like the 1920s. Yeah. And I remember as like a four or five year old kid uh, looking at those and thinking, I miss this. I miss this so much. 
and having a connection to the old pictures I would see in the newspaper. And it gave me like a, it gave me a sense of nostalgia for a time that I didn't, I didn't live in. Yeah. So Uh that's the only real connection. And I've always kind of carried that with me, especially about the 1920s, thirties and forties. I've always had a nostalgia for that time period in particular, and a little bit of like the Victorian era, but like, I can at least point to that as being a kid and, and not having a lot of life experience being like, that's kind of as an adult going, that's kind of weird that I thought that, you know? Yeah. How about you, Riley? I mean, I think there's a part of me that feels like really old, you know, like just kind of like weary and like, long sigh like interesting you know what i mean (laughs) that's so interesting just like i've done there's definitely a part of me that feels like i've done this a lot of times right right but i mean can i there's no absolution to that i can't you know say with certainty at all of anything about that but you know that yeah i mean we're all from the beginning of the universe like on a physical level right Well, and there's the whole idea of like, you know, and it's a bit new agey, I don't know, but like cellular memory, maybe I'm remembering my great grandfather's memories when I look at those newspapers. I've been dying to do a story of high strangeness about reincarnation. And And I've told you time and time again, Bryce, no. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? The the evidence is is quite compelling and, and a little overwhelming. There's some incredible cases and they're usually yeah. take place within children they usually mm-hmm. lose it at about the age of seven and 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 beyond and uh and the cases are i mean they have a system of how to rate the the veracity of each claim and like i said i mean some of the details that these some of the details on this are, thing are crazy <laughs> they're insane and uh it's hard not to make a good solid case for the idea of reincarnation yeah um, fantastic interesting thought anyway. i mean I don't know. We, well, we, but we digress. We digress. We digress. We're going to take. What a, do you think about it? Yeah, as we do. Take a break. Take it. We're going to take a break. You think about it, and when we come back, we're going to have the final part of the longest episode of Bigfoot Collectors Club we've ever done. <laughs> we'll be right back. Part three: The Amityville Legacy. Jay Anson's Amityville Horror, the title of which the author said was inspired by H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror, was published in 1977. Since the Lutzes did not work directly with Anson, I think it's safe to assume, and this is me speaking as Michael, uh, many parts of the story were embellished, rough edges smoothed over to better serve a linear arc, and we know some of the names, like Father Mansuko's, were changed. The book is estimated to have sold around 10 million copies since publication. The book was made into the film, The Amityville Horror, starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder. The movie was a massive hit and remained the largest grossing independent film until 1990 when it was usurped by, anyone want to take a guess? Titanic. No, independent film. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) That's all I had. (laughs) Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Nice! Oh, green slime vibes? Yeah. It always, yeah, ooze. Yeah, it always comes from green slime. Guys, the green secret slime. of the box, oh, box oh, office wow. is yeah, ooze. Right. The yeah. secret of the ooze. We've unlocked it! Is wow. it's, always a, it's always a box <laughs> office hit. Yeah, that's crazy. 
The Amityville Horror franchise went on to spawn 12 films and 9 books in total. But the Lutzes ended up only making around $300,000 because of the contracts that they uh, signed. The couple, in an un- perhaps unrelated, divorced a few years after they left Amityville. And actually, they moved uh, directly from Amityville to San Diego. They went all the way. They moved to a complete different coast. Over time, belief in the Lutz's story has shifted into folklore. And most people consider the entire thing to be a hoax cooked up by George Lutz, who could not afford to keep the house after his business started to struggle. And the prevailing skeptical belief is that Lutz came up with the story with William Weber, Ronald DeFeo's lawyer who was trying to help his client get off. In the September 17, 1979 issue of People magazine, Weber stated, I know this book is a hoax. We created this horror story over many bottles of wine. So there you have it. You have a lawyer saying that it's made up. However, William Weber also had beef with uh, George Lutz because originally... Uh, they were going to work together on making this book happen, yeah. but then apparently George Lutz uh, went off without him. Uh, they actually ended up, I believe, suing one another. And the other thing that doesn't make sense about this to me, and I'm not saying that this isn't the case, but I don't know why Weber would want to write a book with George Lutz after his client had already been committed of murder in case it was a way to get him out yeah. of jail. Yeah, I take umbrage with this whole idea of it being a hoax as well. Because, look, they bought the house at a discount, and they were fucking out of there in 28 days. That And that's over the Christmas holiday. So you don't have time for your finances well, to deplete to shambles. In, well, in the three economy weeks. was going yeah. through a really hard time. In, even still, though, and, Michael, the paperwork, the pe- the ink probably wasn't even dry. It just, it's just it's not, not enough time. I will say their budget was for like a thirty to fifty in the thirty to fifty thousand dollar range. So they were stretching. He had just bought that speedboat, and a storm and a storm flooded their house. Please, so I Please. think he was freaking. And they had tax problems, so they they basically left the house and the bank foreclosed on it, regardless Whoa. of whether it was haunted or not. They literally packed up and moved out and let the bank foreclose on it. That's so, a pretty Scooby Doo way to get out of it. It's yeah, like, we're gonna get exactly. That ghost money. Here's yeah. what we're gonna do. And so, yeah. what better way and we'll for our make whole family to San Diego broke? What yeah. better? Yeah, but they. What it's better? The long gone. What better <laughs> way to make some of that money back by saying we were haunted? Listen, I don't buy it. Uh, the 2012 yeah. documentary film My Amityville Horror. Uh, which I watched on Amazon Prime, examines the experience through the eyes of Danny, a now grown (laughs) man. After a troubled childhood, Danny, a UPS driver haunted by a lifetime as being known as the Amityville guy, not only maintains that the events from the book actually happened, but that George, whom he hated, was a black magic practitioner who was Mm. actually the source of, of the paranormal activity in one scene, Danny describes walking in on George and a group of men conducting a dark ritual in the garage and watching his stepfather levitate a wrench across the room. Regardless, skepticism prevails over the entire saga. Even if even the, even the next owner of the house didn't believe that the house was possessed. And this comes from the Amityville murders.com. 
During an, an August 9th, 1979 press conference, Jim Cromartie, then owner of the Amityville house, said this. I was born in Amityville. I knew every family that grew up in this house. And that is another crock. The Lutzes say that every family that was brought up in this house had bad things happen to them. It happens to be a fact that only one family had a tragedy happen to them in this house. Every other family had nothing but good things come out of the house. Well, that's already bullshit because we know two families were completely affected. Their lives were shattered and altered forever, not just one. And, uh, and, 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 and you know, also, yeah, so suck on that, you old lady. Also, suck on I'm, that, you old lady. And you know I'm, what? Warren I've just, said I've they... just discovered. I've just discovered on our shared Google Doc that Bryce has completely hijacked my end to this entire story. That's right. You better watch out. And listen, nice the, War- nice the Warrens work. said nice. the Warrens said that the reason no other family experienced paranormal activity after that was because they exercised those very demons. The Warrens said. The yeah. Warren said, "Listen, I, how do you want? How can you just poo-poo that entire?" I'm not. I'm putting the information out there. He's contexting. He's I'm not con- exactly. Thank okay. you. It's okay. contextual poo-poo. All right. All right. Well, Bryce, why don't you take the first half of the sentence that you wrote that I didn't write, and Great. then I'll take the second half. Of Sounds this. good. Great. So before you buy or move into your next place, you may want to find out the history and have it blessed by a half-competent priest or buyer beware. And that, dear listener, is the terrifying tale of the Amityville Horror. (laughs) Well done, Bryce. Uh, what do you think, Riley? Riley yeah, Riley. We always ask that? our special guests, what, <laughs> what the, the hell, hell was that? that? What's your that take was, on this, man? I mean, that was awesome, is what that was. Well done. Well done, lads. Well done. Thank you. Uh, I mean, the pig monster, I hate that. That haunts my nightmares forever. <laughs> Jody. I, yeah. Why is the pig monster named Jody? <laughs> yeah. I also, that makes it scarier that it's named Jody. Yeah. I don't I'm know. It's, see just, if it's even a worse. Demon from the lesser key of Solomon named Jody. I meant to do this earlier, but as you talk, I'm just going to quietly. But, I mean, overall, I don't know. This just sort of has an air of 70s camp to it. Really? And, a little bit, yeah. And I, I also, I think about what Michael said about, you know, The Shining and, um, and the exorcist and yeah and this like is the on cultural the, tropes of the time and yeah and this seems to be really riding the wave of the satanic panic that's See, about yeah. to explode in the early 80s yeah and i mean i don't know they move some paper yeah but but i mean i don't know there's other parts of it too where it, it is just so cinematic and it's such a like you you want to see this like the stuff about the storm and everything it's like it's this the story you want to believe it, and you want to you want to see it in your mind and and believe it in your mind's eye. Um, I I don't know. I mean, the murder definitely happened, you know, and I think there is a sense of evil that pervades that whole thing, like true, deep, like primordial darkness, and yeah. like just the 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 idea of the face down like execution is like that's like so horrifying yeah so terrible that it's and like there's just the weirdness some... that like no one really knows how that all went down either you know yeah like, that i mean yeah yeah too. so there's i mean that even that just being in sort of uh, 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it, I guess, is what I'm really getting at. I will at. say that everybody who encountered the Lutzes, to their credit, all they all said they seemed very genuine. And in that Miamiville documentary, you know, the, the, the grown Danny is clearly traumatized. But, 100%. And he seems very yeah. genuine. But he could also have just been traumatized by... Uh, a really asshole of a stepdad and the fact that his entire life was hijacked at a young age by the story that he was a kid who was in a haunted house. That's you, an interesting perspective. You know, I yeah. had this theory by watching my Amityville horror. And while Danny might've thought that his father, his stepfather was the catalyst and the trigger, I am wondering if perhaps it could have been someone like Danny himself verging oh, no. on adolescence teenager because there's a moment in that documentary when he says she asks him when did this start he said the moment i walked in that house and he said when he was like 15 and supposed to be in school but wandering around the neighborhood that was later that was later i know i know but he said loose timeline he said um it followed him and it, paranormal happenings were happening to him outside of that house. Well, and, uh, I, I think that's actually an astute uh, observation, Bryce. I will say I'll back you up on this. I had a similar thought because even in the book, they talk about how poltergeist activity, shit, and there of which there was a lot supposedly that took place. And that's mostly what... Um, uh, in Miamiville horror that uh, Dan Danny talks about is just mm. he mostly focuses, although he says he saw Jody, he mostly focuses on this on on the stuff moving around the room on their on their own. Right. And in the book, they talk about how, you know, poltergeist activity often happens with an adolescent in the house, but usually, usually it's, a girl, it's a girl. Right. But in this case, maybe it was a boy, yeah. and maybe it was um, all that angst, all that emotion, and all that been anger. The perfect is dead. conductor for really something because, paranormal like because that. Because apparently George insisted one of the conditions of marrying Kathy was that the kids would all take his name legally, and he would legally adopt them, even though their own father was still alive. Mm. And uh. and Danny apparently resented him for that act and that act alone. Um, through the classic, a, "You're not my real dad." Yeah, yeah. 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 So there's a lot of a lot I of mean, angst that's there. energy. I mean, yeah. That's I mean, energy. look, my first my gut reaction with this kind of stuff is always to go skeptical. But this is, if there's anywhere where this is gonna happen, I mean, it's a pretty perfect setup. I you know, mean, yeah, the, truly like one of the creepiest murders ever. And it's just like, how, how is, how are things going to go well in that house after that? You just don't see it happening. And, and the, the hidden room, you know, it's just, it's yeah. very creepy. And the Ronnie DeFeo hearing voices. I mean, I, I, I think that's, bullshit. I mean, that's schizophrenia or, 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 yeah. or a, yeah. I think that's, I think that's that's William Weber being like, we got one way out of this. You I went don't know. Crazy. I, I think I, I would side with Lorraine Warren that something was there on that property before some type of evil incarnate and uh just looking for a way to manifest and when it finds somebody who's on the fringe like ronnie defeo it can tap in and it can deliver messages like kill your entire family and and then from there just morph and gain the energy that it takes to open and shut windows garage doors move furniture uh levitate people off their fucking bed you know yeah. i mean this this is 
fascinating and a fascinating uh, place to land uh, on our third birthday because unlike the Roswell stuff, which sort of reaffirms my belief that there wasn't some type of alien or interdimensional craft, the more I researched this story, the more and more I thought this this was bullshit. Hmm. And even watching Amityville Horror, I feel like that guy obviously went through some real stuff. Now, look, ghosts are true. Ghosts are real. We've proved, oh, we've it, proved, on it. proved it on this yeah. podcast. I'm, I'm open yeah. to to I'm, I'm with Riley. I'm open to like, well, if anything's going to be weird here, it's that I definitely think that um, there were no voices in Ronald DeFeo's head. I think that's all made up by the uh, by the by the prosecutor, by the defense attorney. Um I think the Lutz family try to capitalize on this stuff. It's really fascinating to me because, and I think the, I think the thing at the end of the day that really made me go, mm, is that the witness to Roswell book that we research for our Roswell saga is like witness after witness after witness. It's not written like a screenplay. It's, it's at times contradictory. It's at times like frustrating, but it feels like a text that is compiled of like two hardcore nerds trying to get to the bottom of what happened in 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 reality at Roswell, right? With like affidavits and all this shit in there. And then this book, and maybe it's just a, a product of the times, it literally reads like a Stephen King novel that almost scene per scene, scene by scene could just be turned into a screenplay. Yeah. So that I would say I would need to read a better book that researches this story and gives me some real corroborating eyewitness testimony before I come anywhere near. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> I hear you. you believing want, yeah. this, belie- fully believing this story. Now, of I think course, you, you want plaster casts the of the uh, plaster casts of the pig footprints. Yes, yes. <laughs> Look, well, and that's one of the things. <laughs> well, uh, you know what I want. You know what I want. But, but, Truly, wait. hold on. I have. To, I have to. Yeah. You got to sample the green slime, man. <laughs> and also, you don't right. throw it all in the you river. You keep a little bit. Right. Yeah. If you have green ectoplasm, like you got to sample the you right. come, that that killed me. Yeah, yeah and Bryce, yeah. one of the big arguments against this book is you can check the weather, and there was no snowstorm on that date. Bum, bum, bum. So there's Any, anywhere shit. else. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there's just like it doesn't add the the concrete evidence just isn't there at the end of the day. Look, I'll gi- I'll give you that this author may have embellished, but the the idea that all none of this happened is, and that they did it for 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 money and to get out of a get out of a debt. I just don't fucking buy. Yeah. I believe that these walls were stained with evil and that something took advantage of that. And the moment that family walked in there with their emotional turmoil, it picked up on that. It capitalized off of that. And it was having a heyday. You don't fucking buy your dream house and move out 28 days later, unless shit is hitting the fan. And apparently it was $300,000 in 1970. uh, Let's say sevens. 77 money let's see how much that is you know that's over so they, a li- that's you know, over a lifetime made... too i watched a, uh, an interview no, no, no. When it they was asked like... kathy and george lutz why they were coming out of the public and their answer 
vibed with me. It checked out. It passed my test. They said, you know, the media was embellishing a lot of what happened. Uh, they were taking their own cues on, on, you know, making stuff up about what happened. And we felt, you know, it was on us to tell our story because everyone else was doing it for us. And that, you know, it was on a talk show that they were saying this. And I was like, that totally fucking makes sense, right? It's like, you got to reclaim your own story. And, you know, sure, you could say, oh, they're just hoaxing it for the money, but is losing your entire family and your dream house and your fucking job um, worth this little yeah. plot and plan to, uh, yeah. you know, I don't think so. I just don't that fucking buy it. That doesn't make any sense at all. It does, no, I, you know? not. I think the interesting question that this raises for me, all of this, whether whether it's all completely authentic or it's, or it's nothing or it's somewhere in between, is like whether you believe in and accept the existence of this like yeah entity of like like deep primordial personified evil mm. you know like is that a thing because is that that's what kind of you brought that up earlier bryce and is that is that kind of how you and the thing that you know came up from the well and it dwells in the core of the earth and all this like what what do you what do you think about that like it you know it's it's not a spirit of someone who walked this earth it's this ancient no evil personified yeah like, there what, there is a dark energy amidst this planet and it can and it can take the form of uh, how you know the Catholic Church views as a as a demon. It could take the form as djinn. Uh, you know, it's it's an energy, and and cultures and societies have been labeling it as so for as long as we can go back. But uh, you know, yeah, there's there is an energy that is supernatural that that can not be explained by science alone. That that uh, has intelligence. It has it has the ability to manipulate our physical space and invade our physical space. And, uh, and all it needs is the right type of energy to conduct its business. And, uh, you know, it can, it can do it through trauma. It can do it through, uh, emotion. And, and I think that's what this family experience was just well, a piece of that energy. I, I get you. I think the real victims of this story are the six members of the Dove Feo family that were murdered by their fucking shithead. Well, I mean, obviously. Well, yeah. No, that's no, at the end of the day. Sure, sure. <laughs> yes. yeah. I'm just that's saying, I don't know. Objection overruled. Family. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. This is obviously good. It's galvanizing for uh, year four of Bigfoot Collectors Club. Yeah. Uh, I've officially become a skeptic. Bryce has doubled down. He's now into demons just like my picture the true believer yeah. we want to know riley we... riley stays right in the middle well i i mean you know i i here's my counter to that bryce just, I just mean we, balance. I, we wrap it up real quick it just uh maybe that that evil goes hand in hand with human consciousness because 100%. like you don't see evil in nature it's like that line in the book that we cover on our patreon great plug uh devolution you know where it's like it's it's neither good nor bad they're just hungry you know it's like mm -hmm. so maybe in order to have this evil it's somehow related to our own sort of human consciousness yeah you know, it's not a great point a primordial spirit so much as it's endemic of well and elements the, are destructive fires destructive waters destructive you know at the same time fire can be yeah. yeah life can be or fire can be support can support life water can support life but all the elements have a sliding spectrum of like destroying or creation right but, like fire makes art fire builds like swords and beautiful pieces of glass but it can also burn down your house so uh, yeah. maybe there maybe there is you know like in the way that they use the storm in this book like 
you know, nature, maybe there's some primordial elemental thing. And it's just a reminder that like, it's all a sliding fucking scale. There is no good and evil. It, they're just extremes. Yeah. Mm. Who knows? It's yeah. a great point, Riley. And, and, and absolutely. And, uh, listen, you know, I have no problem with, you know, human evil, human consciousness, uh, forming a psychic projection, which can also evolve itself. So I, you, <laughs> you know, don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with any of that. Next quote, Bryce Johnson. <laughs> we want to know what you, the listener think of the Amityville horror. Tell us what you think. Leave a comment on our social media. Come join us on the other side. Join that conversation there. But what do you think, uh, really took place at the, uh, at the famous house at 112 Ocean Avenue. Yeah, and I'm going to throw up a bunch of links in the show notes so you can sort of go down the rabbit hole yourself. If you're a true crime lover, there's a lot to explore there just with the DeFeo murders themselves, if that's your thing. So uh, I recommend checking out some of the stuff, including this Amityville uh, murders.com. Uh, guys, before we go, uh, plugs. Uh, 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 Riley, Bryce, what do you, what do you got? I mean, this is the longest episode we've ever done. That's I'm, great. I'm, it's our really, it's, it's our birthday. I'm proud of us. That's my plug. Happy birthday to us. Yeah, happy, this, happy. What a great way to celebrate to it. Absolutely. A long uh, and rambling deep dive. Bryce, where can people find your game? That's great. Go to uh, www. My wife said you don't have to say that anymore. Gosh, she's so right. <laughs> Go to thedpcugame.com. Order yours today. Dirty picture cover up. Greatest game in the world. I also wanted to plug shout out to Tyler Bentz and his podcast. That would be rad that he co-hosts with Woody, uh, his buddy, Woody Brown. Uh, I, I called in and told, retold my origin story, the entity that I saw on the window. Uh, Tyler, of course, did our zombie Bigfoot uh, cryptic crypt t-shirt that we talked about earlier on the show. So go check out his podcast. Um, do us a favor. Go to. Uh, I, Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. If you do, we'll read it on the air like this one from LTCSAGV, who says, go get regressed, five stars, keep going, queens. And that's exactly <laughs> what we plan to do we uh, will. <laughs> in uh, uh, year four. So, guys, as is our tradition, next week, there will be a Patreon sampler for the main feed. We'll pick something out of the archives to put up. Uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you'll have a new episode, so everybody gets something new. And then we'll be back with an all-new episode on November 11th to kick off the fourth fucking year of Bigfoot Collectors Club. Nice. Yeah. Until then. Season four, baby. Good night. And go get exercised. <laughs> <laughs> Bigfoot Collectors Club is produced by Riley Bray. Our theme song is Come Alone by Sun Eaters, courtesy of Lotus Pool Records. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the podcast to more listeners. To support the show, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Bigfoot Collectors Club and unlock multiple reward episodes every month. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. 
Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday.